Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I'm with Mark right now. Hey, Mark. Hey, good to see you again. What's going on? How's your week been? Very busy. I was up fishing in Wisconsin, then got back and went to EPA, the Evangelical Press Association, where we mingled with our compatriots in the area of journalism, evangelical journalists, and received a number of awards for Christianity Today, for Christianity Today Online, and other publications that we have here. It's pretty awesome, right? It was great. It was a great two days, yeah. So this week, our listeners are going to hear something a little bit different, which means that I will not actually really be contributing to the podcast discussion because we're going to be playing something that you did at EPA, and that was that you hosted a panel. Do you want to tell us a little bit what yeah. the panel is about? It was a uh, plenary panel. It meant the whole EPA convention was there for it because they thought that everyone was interested in the topic, and I think they very much were. The title of the panel was The Trump Administration, How Should the Church Respond? And the idea was to explore the division in the House of Evangelicalism over the Trump administration and how we understand that, what are the causes of that, are there ways to bridge that difference? Interesting. So who did you have talk about this? So on the panel were uh, three really bright and very devout uh, evangelical leaders who I deeply respect. So one was Dan Darling, vice president of communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's a contributor to CT Pastors. He's the author of several books, including The Original Jesus. Uh, There was Julie Royce, who's the host of the national talk show Up for Debate on the Moody Network and the author of Redeeming the Feminine Soul, which is going to come out in September. And our own... Caitlin Beatty, who is currently an editor-at-large for Christianity Today, but as many of you know, she was former print managing editor of CT and former co-host of Quick to Listen, and she's the author of the book A Woman's Place. Great. So before we send our listeners on to this discussion that you had, as always, I just want to remind everyone that the best way that you support the podcast is by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and subscribing to our publication. And as I always like to tease out future stuff that we're doing, Mark, you have an editorial coming up about Trump, if I recall, for the May issue. Can you tell everyone a little bit about Well, it looks at this very issue from a slightly different perspective. How are we to understand the evangelicals who are polled, white evangelicals who are polled, and end up saying things that most evangelicals would repudiate, uh, their attitudes toward minorities, toward refugees, toward people who are in desperate plights, seem hard-hearted and frankly cruel at times. And it makes most other evangelicals wonder Uh, What's going on here? Who are these evangelicals? I don't know them. I don't meet them. And what recent studies have shown is that a great number of those white evangelicals with sub-biblical attitudes toward the other, they're they're unchurched. They are able to sign off for the pollster that they're born again, that they believe in Jesus, but then when asked if they go to church, a great many of them do not go to church. This is not to say that church evangelicals don't have 
problems with prejudice. I think every every evangelical would admit there are areas in their life that they're dealing with prejudice. But it does suggest that unchurched evangelicals have attitudes that are definitely unbiblical, that, that only makes some sense. They're not in church to be discipled into the ways of Jesus. So the editorial is to discuss, okay, how do we understand this group, and what can we do to reach out to this group and help them to become a part of the church's life and be discipled in Jesus' name, along with us who need to be discipled in his name, because we, we're hardly perfect, but this group is an especially needy group in a lot of ways, because they seem to have forgotten the mercy of Jesus. Mark, I'm a little concerned that you just gave people a reason not to subscribe to the magazine because you told them your whole argument. <laughs> <laughs> but there's the... more, guys. There's more where that came from, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even though it's a 600-word editorial. But There you go. I said, I, I summarized it in 800 words. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is really interesting. It makes me want to go on a longer tangent about that group's disconnection overall from institutions. But I will not on this recording. Okay. Instead, I will send people to this recording that you did of something that happened just a couple days ago. So don't worry, people. We've not been sitting on this for a while and then just giving it to you now. Have a happy Easter, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. Okay. Good morning. But I did want to make one uh, one thing clear, that the question, how should the church respond, the word church is there's something packed in there. First of all, it means the evangelical church. Second, it means the white evangelical church. And, and as you'll see in the course of the discussion, there is a division of the house, if you, haven't, if you hadn't heard about it, over the person of Donald Trump and his administration. There's a whole different set of questions and issues we would need to tackle if we would need to talk about, uh, especially the African-American church, but the other minority members of evangelicalism. And and their relationship to white evangelicalism that, in fact, supported Trump because there was a huge division there as well. But the issues involved in that are much different and uh, much more complex and would deserve their own attention. Besides, we're all, we're all white up here, so we have no business talking about how African Americans or Hispanics think at this point. With that being said, let me introduce our panel. I was just so excited when Lamar told me who uh, was going to be on the panel because I find all these three people just articulate, thoughtful, devout, just really good people. They represent our movement extraordinarily well. Dan Darling, to my left here, is Vice President of Communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's a contributor to CT Pastors, and he's the author of several books, including The Original Jesus. Uh, next to him is Julie Royce, host of the national talk show Up for Debate on the Moody Radio Network and author of Redeeming the Feminine Soul, which is due out in September. And then furthest to the left, uh, I hope not necessarily politically, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> is Caitlin Beatty. That's pretty funny. She's an editor-at-large with Christianity Today, and I had the privilege with working, working with her at Christianity Today for many years. Uh, she was the well, last print managing editor, did an extraordinary job for the magazine, and she's the author of the book, A Woman's Place. So to help uh, introduce the topic, I'm going to start with the question, uh, how is it that we've gotten to this point that we're asking how the church should respond to a particular presidential administration. I don't recall anyone talking about how should evangelicals respond to the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. But when this question comes up, it kind of makes sense to us. We think it's a real question. So what is it about this administration that makes us ask this question? Okay, I'll Julie, start. go. Um, <laughs> I think it's the first time that I can remember in my adult life where there's a candidate who supports a platform that I think many Christians, myself included, see as a moral platform. But the candidate himself did not display the same kind of morality in his, in his personal life um, and even some of the things he, he espoused. And so there's this huge disconnect between a platform 
that for a lot of us appears moral and a candidate who is immoral. And I, I think it required compromises on uh, the part of the religious right that some of us, myself included, was shocked that the religious right was willing to make. Um, and it required us to embrace things that we had never embraced before, mm -hmm. um, as far as you know, things that character really doesn't matter that much. And that's something that I thought we held pretty dear. And I think it, it, um, it showed a fracture within the religious right where I felt like I would often be defending the religious right, saying we're not the stereotype. We really aren't. We care about the immigrant. We care about the poor. We just don't believe in these strategies of helping them. But then when you heard the rhetoric that came out that sounded so demeaning of certain groups of people and that we were still you know, willing to, to get on that bandwagon was shocking to me personally. Um, and so I, I felt like there was a, a lot of uh, the right that seemed to be putting so much belief in a political solution uh, and willing to make compromises that I think really hurt the church for that political solution. And of course, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But as somebody who's been a lifelong conservative who has never um, voted Democrat, never, I've voted pretty straight GOP my whole life, um, with a few exceptions, uh, this was one where I just felt like I'm in a complete disconnect with the majority of my tribe. And that was disheartening to me personally um, and disheartening for me to see how quickly we got behind something that I just don't think represented who we are as conservative Christians. Yeah, if I could, <clears throat> if I could uh, add to that a little bit, I think I disagree a little bit with the premise of the question only because um, I'm not sure this is the first time Christians have had to say, what should our relationships be? be to the administration or it's not the first it shouldn't be the first time i mean i think every every evangelical christian living in a country like ours or, or in any country but particularly ours where uh, we participate in the election of our leaders we have a say we have a voice we're of the people by the people and for the people so we we share some of the uh, responsibility and accountability for who who leads us and, and for their policies i think we always have to be asking ourselves what should our relationship be to them um at what point should we resist uh, and oppose the administration on uh, the laws being made, unjust laws or uh, policies or even kind of conduct or behavior? And at what point should we support it? And I think <clears throat> I want to say if this is the first time Christians are asking, maybe I should have a, an opinion about or have a this is the first time I should think about my relationship to the administration, I want to say um, we should have been thinking about that all along, okay. to be honest with you. Kaylin, you have something to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo a lot of what Julie said in terms of a, a constituency who's been described as values voters, who for a long time have considered moral character and integrity a really important part of considering a presidential candidate. You saw that fall by the wayside in a really strange way so that after the election, white evangelicals were the ones who were most likely to say that you could kind of build some kind of wall between a candidate's personal and public life, that what they said and did in their personal life didn't necessarily matter when it came to what how they would lead politically. So that's a, that's a major uh, sea change among white evangelicals in terms of how they're thinking about their voting. Um, I would say that this election reveals the extent to which a sort of what I would call a secular conservatism has taken root in a lot of branches of white evangelicalism. So, you know, for, for a long time, um, the mainline church was 
overly identified with a uh, liberal secularism or secular liberalism. And that's, of course, what we hear in rhetoric in evangelical circles about the, the kind of threat from, from outside, the, the threat of secular liberalism. I would say there is also a secular conservatism where there are values and ideologies attached to a conservative political worldview that are not aligned with the gospel. And we have not done a particularly good job of examining and revealing that the ways that secular conservatism has influenced white evangelicals' worldview. Let me follow up on a statement that Julie made. I want to just hear how if if uh, Caitlin and, and both would accord with that. You, uh, Julie, you said you felt that Trump's uh, candidacy had held moral positions or had a moral, uh, I forget the exact <coughs> word you used, but agenda. Well, generally the moral platform. Generally, yeah. uh, but my understanding is that some evangelicals felt that was it was, all, it was not only an immoral person, it was an immoral agenda. Dan or Caitlin, do you resonate with that or not? Well, I would say, um, first of all, Christians need to be wary of, of wherever you fall on the on the uh, on the on the partisan divide, whether you, you lean progressive or you lean conservative, I'm I'm a conservative. Have been my whole life, but I think to to echo a little bit what Caitlin said, I think there is a kind of secularizing of of our politics uh, as Christians, and I think we have to be careful of um, being sucked into wholly a platform or movement just because we agree with a few things. Uh, and that, this happens on the left and the right. I think it happens on the right. You know, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm, I'm generally pro-markets uh, and capitalism and, and a few other things on the conservative platform. But I need to be conscious and wary that I don't get totally sucked into it to where um, my party or my move, the movement or party that I happen to fall into is, has an authority over my beliefs that only really the scriptures should have. And I think it happens on the left too. I think you know, uh, if you have a particular issue that uh, is given more attention by the left, I've seen a, a, a tendency to kind of swallow wholeheartedly the whole Democratic Party platform in a way that's not healthy. So I think we have to be wary of that. I also think um, that it's interesting. Caitlin said that um, there's a kind of secularizing of conservatism, which I would I would really agree with. Um, you know, when when George W. Bush was president, you know, there was a lot of overheated rhetoric by the the media, like, oh, he's he's a Christian, he's an evangelical, he's going to establish a theocracy, you know, or like, it's going to be like Constantine or something like that, you know, everyone is freaking out about that, and, you know, these Christians are applying the Bible to the public square, why are they doing this? This election seemed to it seems like evangelicals said, "Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna apply the the scriptures to the to our policy." Um, how do you like that? And and I think, <laughs> you know, I think I think a the left and the media really fear. Uh, a, a, a sort of Christ, Christians bringing their faith into the public square and applying the Bible to public policy. But what they should fear more is Christians that don't do that and Christians that kind of adopt the secular conservative. I've never missed George W. Bush so much. Yes. <laughs> My heart longs for him to return to office. Yes. <laughs> and, and we'll conclude with that. <laughs> So I think uh, Julie already alluded to this, but uh, does it, did this election cause a division in the House? 80% voted for him, 20% against. Uh, certainly the 20% that I'm familiar with, not against, but voted for someone else besides him, find ourselves mystified by the 80% who voted for him. Uh, at, at the least, um, even though I've tried to do a lot of reading since then to try to figure it out. Is this election causes division, reveal it, or, or just accentuate it? Well, okay, I'll, I'll speak then. Um, I think there's a, 
I think there's a couple things I think. First of all, not to quibble with the numbers, I think 80% of evangelicals, of white evangelicals actually voted, voted for Trump. So I think if you took the whole mass of white evangelicals, that number's probably a little lower. But nevertheless, the majority of evan- white evangelicals voted for Trump. I think there's a divide. I, I was really amazed and stunned at there's a divide between the kind of... Um, I don't want to say elite, but the evangelical thought world, if you will, thought leaders and actual people in the pew. And there's a real a stunning divide there, I think. Um, and I think there's a couple ways to react to this. One is a kind of like eye rolling. I can't believe these people voted this way, uh, which I, I don't think is right. I, the other one is to, to listen and learn and get underneath the kind of rhetoric and figure out what what was it that uh, Trump was appealing to uh, that caused people to, to vote that way um, and, and really listen and learn uh, f- from people. Um, I mean, I, I don't think we can have an attitude of just like writing people off and sort of like... Like, they voted this way, and I don't like you, and, you know, we're going to move on here. Um, so I think we have to really try to understand why these things happen. And they don't happen in a vacuum. I mean, there was there was only two choices, and um, they were, you know, mo- most white evangelicals were turned off by the other option um, and didn't see the value of voting third party. So presented with those two options, um, they chose what they considered the, the least bad option. Um, I, I would suspect most of them didn't do it wholeheartedly. They did it because this was the only option that they had in front of them. So I think we have to sympathize with that a little bit, whether you agree with it or not. I think we have to sympathize with it. I think one of the things that is interesting, you know, as evangelicals, we used to say, we're all messy in the church, right? Everybody's messy. Um, but the new thing is, um, wait a minute, I saw how you voted, so we, we can't be that messy, you know? Um, so I think I think the church should be the one place where people who voted differently can come together and mm-hmm. learn from each other and uh, understand each other. So I think from a pastoral perspective, I would agree with everything that Dan has said in terms of, and I would also add that I do think the divide is between evangelical thought leaders and kind of rank and file believers. It was really almost um, like whiplash to me to have CT, World Magazine, Russell Moore, Al Mohler, these, these heavyweight, what we consider heavyweights among white evangelicals all come out denouncing or criticizing Trump in some capacity, and then you see the 81% number. So what, what's the disconnect? Absolutely. And I would say everyone in this room is an evangelical thought leader. We, we do have to understand the emotional or, you know, psychological, that's so psychologizing. We have to understand the reasons that a lot of white evangelical, you kind of your everyday believers felt like voting for Trump was their only choice. I do think that we also, though, have to clarify in the public square what an evangelical is. And so thought leaders need to say, we are, our approach to a fully gospel-informed understanding of our role in the public life is not quite what was maybe represented among the 81%. And it's also an issue of discipleship. I mean, I saw Rich Clark tweet at Stetzer yesterday, inactive evangelicals are statistically the worst people ever, (laughs) which is maybe hyperbolic. But we have found that there are, you know, people in polls and surveys who will identify as evangelicals but don't attend a local church, have little discipleship or uh, Christian community. What's happening to where their worldview is probably not being informed primarily by their their pastor or by good Bible studies, but maybe by you know national media and talk radio. Um, 
So I think we, of course, we need to respond pastorally, but we also need to clarify what does it mean to even be an evangelical if so many thought leaders are saying, are denouncing this candidate and yet 81% voted for him. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of, um, uh, like Caitlin said, discipleship, shepherding, uh, leading well, um, and I think being prophetic within your own tribe. And so um, we have a tendency, whether it's white evangelicals or thought leaders or minority evangelicals, we, we all have a tendency to be prophetic against another tribe, you know, that because that will get sort of amens in, in our own context. But we have to kind of lead people along and be prophetic and say, um, you know, to white evangelicals to say, um, and, and in many ways you're right, we're right on pro-life and marriage and, and, and these important issues and religious liberty. Uh, but we also do need to sit and listen to our minority brothers and sisters, and understand why, why, why is it why is it that that this election particularly really caused them so much harm and so much pain and suffering, and we need to bear their burdens. And I think us as pastors telling our and encouraging our people to do that. But I think we don't. I, I think one of the reasons for the disconnect between leaders and people is that there's a tendency for, and, I, and I'm talking to myself here, to kind of uh, talk down to to people instead of trying to lead them along uh, in terms of uh, you know moving moving them on particular issues. And so I've, I've been humbled by that to, to realize that um, most evangelicals also, by the way, um, are not on Twitter and they're um, probably don't even call themselves evangelicals. They just think of themselves as Christians and they go about their jobs and they're working and they may look up every so often and look at the news, see what's happening. Um, and so there, there is a kind of disconnect between the average everyday Christian and I think, you know, the evangelical thought leaders. I want to get back to your question, Mark, about worldview, because I think that did reveal a difference in worldview. Um, but it's it's a little more subtle, but I think it showed that a lot of evangelicals are really operating on a pragmatism um, where that leads more than maybe uh, what they would say is their worldview. And, and the thing that was stunning to me was that there was a sense that we're going to save America. And I kind of thought that we had learned from the moral majority in the way that it had completely uh, disillusioned the millennial generation, that my generation had learned that when we sort of capitulate our values and, and we get and we look for a savior in politics, that that really backfires badly. And so I was shocked that my generation hasn't learned that better. And I'm surprised that we really do look for a savior politically. I mean, I have so many friends, friends that I love. And, I, you know, I, I, I want to say this humbly because, I mean, I may not be right on, on a lot of this, but it does seem to me that this idea that because we have somebody in office that just appointed Neil Gorsuch to the bench that somehow we've saved America. I mean, we don't even know how Neil Gorsuch is, gonna, is going to rule. We don't. I mean, I hope he does well. I, I hope that he really is what everybody thinks he is, but he comes from a very liberal church. Um, and so you've got to wonder how deep his convictions are on some of these issues. But I do not think that we are going to have a political savior. We have not saved America, no matter who we elected president. We've lost the culture. And politics follows the culture. So we may have a win. I see it as a very short-term win for conservatives, if this is conservative win. It's a very short term. And if we don't win the culture, then we haven't won anything. And what could happen in four years could be 10 times worse than what we thought was going to happen this election. And my fear is that the church will be so weakened because our moral platform has been so undermined that if that happens, we're not going to have a moral platform on which to stand and even to critique what comes after this. And so I, I felt like we were short-sighted. We are way too pragmatic. And again, we are looking to politics. And I thought we had learned this, that politics 
politics does not save our country. And so, I, I mean, I was completely prepared. I really thought Hillary Clinton would win. I was completely prepared for a period of suffering, which I actually thought might be good for the church, um, because suffering is always purified. That's always been what's happened. And to me, our savior will be the church. It's not going to be politics. And so that's where um, where I found it so disheartening because I believe in the church. Okay. So while we're on the issue of worldviews and outlooks, I mean, what would be, we've mentioned a couple of them. Are there other core issues or outlooks or worldviews or to use Charles Taylor's terms, imaginaries that divide white, divide white evangelicals over this administration? What's, what's going on underneath their buying into a kind of a conservative secularism and these other things? Well, I do feel like um, m many rank-and-file Christians felt um, in some ways um, not oppressed, that's, a, that's too strong of a word, but felt um, threatened, maybe a little bit marginalized by, by I think, liberal policies. You know, for, for instance, you know, the things like um, the Obama administration suing the Little Sisters of the Poor and, and the kind of pressure on Christian institutions, particularly institutions of higher education, to either conform to the sexual revolution or lose accreditation, lose funding, um, a kind of, you know, it's kind of fashionable to mock Christians for their for their deeply held beliefs. So I think there's a, a bit of a reacting to that and uh, in, in the election. But I also think, you know, just to echo what, what Julie said, that, you know, we, we need a generation of Christians who are um, who are willing to engage politics, because I think we, we can't abandon the public square because we love our neighbors, right? And if you mm -hmm. care for your your neighbors, whether it's your unborn neighbor or your immigrant neighbor or your, your neighbor who's in poverty, you have to speak out if you have an opportunity to do that. But we do need a generation of Christians who is um, not going to be captive to any one party or movement, who's going to speak gospel truth in a holistic way, who's going to think about human dignity in a holistic way, and is not, regardless of how they vote on election day, is going to be willing to be prophetic uh, wherever that puts them in terms of uh, the political ramification. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, I still don't know 30 years after Ron Sider wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger if a lot of evangelicals have grappled with the human cost of unfettered capitalism and greed. And um, I, I'm generally not one to say pro-life should mean all these different, I think there's a value in having it really specifically be about the issue of abortion. Um, but we, I think we, we, one of the aspects of secular conservatism that we have not grappled with is a nearly salvific role that many conservatives see in the free market without examining the human costs on the ground. Um, and I, I mean, I would say that in a difficult election like last year's, there is a sort of moral clarity that comes for a white evangelical voter to say, well, I know that I'm pro-life on abortion. And one of these candidates is very clearly pro-choice, and the other has said that he is pro-life and that he's going to nominate a conservative Supreme Court justice. Um, so I, I think that in a way, even though a lot of people in this room would, would warn against being a single issue voter, there is something about the clarity of being pro-life on the issue of abortion that comes to um, shape how someone votes in the voting booth. Of course, even four months into this administration, we've already seen policies put forward that I would say are decidedly anti-life, that are not protecting vulnerable people groups. Um, I don't believe that Donald Trump has had a personal revelation about the issue of abortion. Um, so I, I, I still do long for a whole life moral ethic 
that many evangelicals still have not embraced. Well, and I think the ideological divide um, are probably being revealed in what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, there, what I'm finding is there are two camps very clearly on immigration, and and honestly, I find it disheartening the rhetoric because it's so simplistic. It's like if you're not for Syrian refugees coming in, then you must be anti-life or you must be anti-Christian, and this is a very very complex issue, and and I. I think we, when we don't talk about Islam as a political ideology, which it is, it isn't just a religion, it is a political ideology, and we're naive to that. I mean, this, this is a complex issue. When we talk about, when we have a budget coming out and Christian leaders, uh, you know, what is it, more than a thousand Christian leaders sign it and say this is an anti-Christian budget. Well, okay, since when did government supporting welfare programs and some of these things become the Christian position? You know, there is a free market, you know, mentality that, and even biblically, there, I'm a firm believer that God has given to certain institution jobs to do and when you have other institutions doing those jobs for those institutions you rob them of the resources you rob them of the motivation but biblically I don't see an argument for the civic uh, authorities taking primary responsibility for the poor you know I just don't see it it is first the, the individual it is then the family it is then the church. And, and we have so taken over some of these things as a government. And now we've begun to think that that's Christian for the government to do that instead of saying, how about the government makes it a little bit easier for the church to do its job and to provide for some of these things. And so again, the simplistic rhetoric that if you're not this, then you're that. I think these are ideological divides that certainly predate this election. But it, but it's it, it it makes it easy when you have a Donald Trump um, who who's sounds so um, bombastic in the way that he comes across, and he makes it so simplistic. But these are complex issues. They're good discussions to have, but it does kind of dishearten me when I feel like post-election, there's been like one Christian position. If you don't have this, you're not Christian. And I just, I don't think that does a service to the body of Christ. I do think that there is a moral clarity about the issue of the Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah. There is a moral clarity to the Syrian refugee crisis and what the United States response should be. And that's different from saying that all people who do not support or who support the ban are against Syrian children, right? There is, of course, overblown rhetoric, but I actually see a rather unified response to this ban among evangelical thought leaders that I think has very deep roots in the moral vision of the Old and New Testament. It's not hard to find a clear moral vision on how countries and peoples are to respond to refugees in distress. If I if I could uh, respond to both of you, so I, I, I agree mostly and I disagree a little bit, so... Um, <laughs> so... Oh, just disagree a lot. It would be a lot more So fun. I agree. I... <laughs> Dan? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? what's a reasonable housing allowance. Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. 
using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. So uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the things particularly about the Syrian refugee crisis is um, there's a couple things happening here. One, you know, we have the greatest displacement of humans really in modern history, even more than World War II. Um, and the question is, what is the United States' moral responsibility in this world? I mean, you're balancing a couple things. You're balancing, you know, Romans 13, where governments do have the right and responsibility to protect their citizens and have good policies. Uh, uh, I think we should all be for a good vetting of of people who come into this country. Um, but I, I do think uh, that the scapegoating of refugees and immigrants as kind of the problem and scourge in, in, in society is really um, um, unhelpful and I would say uh, unbiblical, I think. Um, we need to deal with facts. And the facts are that the refugee uh, placement program, which can be improved, I'm sure, and can be looked at and examined, is really one of the, uh, really one of the things that the government does well. I mean, there's many ways to get into the country that need to be um, examined and a lot of loopholes and ways that terrorists can exploit our system. That's certainly not one of them. Um, we work with World Vision, World Relief all the time. And, and um, so I do think that we should, regardless of how many refugees you think should come into the country, and that's an open question. You know, presidents have historically capped the number of refugees. And President Obama really had a low number of Syrian refugees coming into the country until the last year. And people were calling on him to raise that, and he didn't. And so that's an open question. Where exactly the policy should be and the line should be and, and all that is is really up for, I think, experts that know more than, than I do. But I do think as Christians, we should not have an attitude of looking at, at them as the other or as, you know, I think one of the things that happens in, in societies is when you start to look at uh, a group of people as less than human and le as, as kind of the problem, um, this is where you get into trouble and where you can justify policies that are harmful. Uh, this, this is what happens with, with the issue of abortion, where we do not see uh, the dignity of that unborn life. We do not see that... Uh, unborn human life as a person. Uh, we see them as a nuisance, as something to be to be gotten rid of. And so I think a Christian moral ethic needs to be informed by by uh, a strong uh, belief in the Imago Dei and a strong belief in loving our neighbor um, and, and obviously allowing government to, to set the policies in terms of what that should look like. Um, I also want to respond to Julie's uh, statement about kind of the poor. And I think she, you're right in one sense that I find it interesting since the election that like there's, you know, people are really sure that Matthew 25 spells out the exact, you know, line by line healthcare policy and, you know, in our legislation. And if you don't support this bill, you, you, you're violating Matthew 25. Um, however, I do think, you know, it, it is a little simplistic to say that, um, the government shouldn't really care about the poor. You know, the church should. I think there's a there's kind of a, a partnership that I think the church has a responsibility to do what it can. But but sometimes the problem is so large that the, the church doesn't have the resources to do it. And in some countries, you know, the church is very small, has a small footprint. And so if it was just left up to the church, people would be cared for. And I do read in the prophets where God judges the nations based on how the poor are cared for. Uh, now we can disagree on what's the best delivery system. You know, and that's where I think we need good discussions. Um, what is the best way to to get aid and comfort to the poor, to the vulnerable? What's the best way to lift them out of their station and give them opportunity to rise? Uh, that's an open question. I think, uh, you know, I'm a believer in capitalism and markets, and I think when done well, I think 
Uh, you know, I think capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than any other system. But, um, you know, good Christians disagree on exactly where the lines are in those Can yes. I respond? Well, first of all, to the Syrian thing, um, I'm not against bringing in Syrian refugees, and I wouldn't want it to be uh, construed as such. But I do think it is much more complex. When we say there's nothing wrong with the vetting system, um, people are coming into the country because they're vetted by UN, by the UN. I mean, they come into UN refugee camps. We know that's why Christians didn't come in in large numbers because they didn't feel safe in the UN refugee camps. Well, you have to ask yourself, you know, why is that? Why did Christians not feel safe in UN refugee camps? But if we bring in the people that made them feel not safe in those refugee camps, that that will be okay. I mean, you got you, you have to think about that. And the UN, I've, I've actually interviewed a number of uh, refugees and talked about what ex they experienced in the UN refugee camps. I talked to a woman who said that there was a system of, of rape among the, the women who were in the UN refugee camps, and the ones that were perpetrating it were the UN officials, the same people who were vetting people coming in. So to say there's no problem with it, I think is uninformed. I think it's, it's grossly uninformed. So I, I think there is a problem with the whole system and the vetting system. And I do think, I mean, when you look at a problem as massive as the refugee problem is, obviously the United States, by bringing in refugees, is not going to solve this problem. It is a drop in the bucket. This is a much larger problem. And when we look at what's happening with Assad right now, that is a huge problem. And unless that gets solved, this is just going to continue. And so, I mean, I think sometimes we're arguing this when the problem is way out here. And again, it's a complex issue. And I think we need to look at it. If we just say there's one moral position, we're not looking at all the things. And sometimes you're afraid to even bring up the other side because you feel like you'll just get lambasted, you know? Like, you, you're immoral because now you don't want to bring in refugees. And I'm not saying that, but I, I do think um, that it needs to be a broader discussion and it needs to be um, a very nuanced discussion because there's a lot in there. And when it comes to um, with helping the poor, and I'll just speak anecdotally for a second. My, my father uh, was a surgeon for years. And before there was Medicare and Medicaid, there was always a pro bono wing in the hospital. And he always donated his time. And all the doctors did. That was just the way you did it. And then the government took over, and then doctors stopped doing that, hospitals stopped doing it, and now it's all of a sudden we expect Medicare and Medicaid to pay for us. These are the sorts of things that happen. When, again, when I say where institutions take over things, um, this is what happens. People stop uh, doing what they're supposed to do, and as Christians, what we should do. And so, you know, now we say, it's such a huge problem, the church can't possibly uh, solve it. Well, if you look at studies, if every, if every evangelical just tied 10%, we'd have more than enough money to solve our problems. We're not even close to that. So I think there's way more that the church can do, and I think we look way too much to the government. And interestingly, if you look at studies, you know, if you look at Arthur Brooks and the studies he's done, the people that give the most are Christian conservatives, because I think they understand it's our job to help the poor. So, I mean, again, I, I, obviously this is a very complex discussion, and I'm not saying there aren't some ways that the government can get involved, but I just think it's way gone beyond what the government should be doing. Yeah. So the issue is more it, the narrative of the gospel or the, the gospel, the government stepped in and took over with Medicare and Medicaid is a little bit simplistic. Also, to rely on medical professionals um, to do pro bono work to cover all the vast and complex um, health care issues that face um, 
poor or working class people in this country is to have a very rosy view of the compassion of healthcare professionals. There are also jobs that the church, the local body of believers, is not actually equipped to do. And this is a simplistic uh, response, but I don't want to go to the church for my health care, right? And especially if I am a poor or working class um, person who's trying to provide for their family, I am grateful that there is some kind of safety net for me and my family that is not to say that conservative Christians shouldn't give more or couldn't give more, and they are very generous. They are among the most generous people in this country. But I'm not sure that just giving, giving money in a sort of individual tithing or donation way can, can really address the systemic uh, health care issues in our country. Okay, that, and this, this debate, this little discussion here is very important because it, it leads to the issue that I think there's not only, and why I asked the question earlier about moral positions, um, there's not only a divide about prudential uh, ways of going about solving the problem, there are actually the feelings on each side uh, in the, among evangelicals is my position actually is more moral than your position. It's not just a prudential judgment. It's, it's, it's saying that the the position you hold and the way you want to solve the problem has proven itself, in my view, to be ineffectual, and that mm -hmm. therefore, if it doesn't solve the problem of poverty, it is immoral, or it just exacerbates it. So I guess what I want to get to, and vice versa, okay? Uh, from Julie's point of view, it would be government has tried to step in and solve the problem, and it simply hasn't worked, and therefore, it's, it, it borders on, on an immoral to support it, to continue to support something that actually uh, increases poverty as immoral, would be an immoral decision, it seems to me. Uh, regardless of what you think about that, Julie, you've been using the line of prudential judgment, and you've been, as Caitlin will tell you, you've been mimic me, mimicking me in the CT offices. How often we have discussions that I'm the one that steps in and says, well, it's not that simple. These are matters of prudential judgment. And the rest of my staff rolls their eyes and say, I'll say, say I'm a coward for not standing up for Christian principles. But I do agree that there are times when it's prudential judgment, and there are times when we need to say something prophetic. As soon as you decide to say something prophetic, you've entered the area of good and bad, right and wrong, moral and immoral. Everyone on this panel says it's our job to speak prophetically to our culture, to our president, to our administration. So Julie, how do you do that? And everyone, how do you do that? Speak truly right and wrong, gospel truth and not gospel truth, in a way that doesn't step into the area of prudential judgment. How do you, how do you make that discernment? Well, I think we are talking about worldview differences. Um, and I think there can be evangelicals with different worldviews. And, mm -hmm. I, th and I think that's true. And, and I do think, so in the area of, of economics and of helping the poor, um, I think if you would look at worldview just as you know, origins, the cause of suffering, the ways to alleviate suffering. There is a narrative in our culture right now, a worldview that says, well, we'll just skip the origins, although you could go to dialectical materialism or something like that if you want to. But if you look at the cause of suffering, the cause of suffering to a huge portion of Americans, and especially those schooled in our public schools because this has been handed down really from, uh, from the left that took over academia, but the, the cause of suffering is an unequal distribution of goods and services. That is the cause of suffering. And the means of alleviating that suffering is redistributing all of the goods and services. That is a worldview. Now, I think as Christians, there's been a lot of 
that worldview sometimes has co-opted in Trump our actual Christian worldview that says sin is the cause of suffering and the cross is the means of alleviating it. Um, can redistributing goods and services be a good and moral thing to do? Yes. But I think it's almost gotten to the point that we've gotten so a part of that mentality that we forget that sin is the cause of suffering and that the way that relieving it is the cross. So I, that might be more philosophical, than, <laughs> but I do think that's a worldview issue um, and, and that that underlies. And, and I think that that's why Christians can feel very moral. Um, if there's a worldview difference, they can feel very moral and that strong conviction that what they believe is moral and right and good um, and believe two very different things about the solution. And I, I don't think those uh, who disagree with me are immoral. I think we probably have worldview differences and, and I have convictions about that, which I would argue, um, which I'm sure they'd argue too. And um, we'll probably be better for that discussion. If, if, I could, if I could go back to your original question, I think, how do we pr be prophetic? I think there's a couple of things we need to think about. One, I think we need to be very careful about um, making every, every issue something um, that we are sure the Bible speaks specifically on. So there's some things that are very clear moral things. I think, you know, the, the sanctity of human life, I think, um, you know, the responsibility to care for the poor and the vulnerable, to see everyone is created in the image of God. Uh, there's, there's a variety of issues there, uh, religious liberty and things like that. There's other issues that are much more nuanced, that good people disagree uh, on the best way to offer aid and comfort to the poor and the vulnerable. And, and I think we need to assume goodwill on people who think that there's a better, a different delivery system or different way to do it than we do. So, you know, if conservatives believe, you know, I mean, if you strip out the, the extremes on both sides, you know, people of goodwill might disagree on the best way to, to care for the poor and the vulnerable, the best way to offer, uh, see that people have proper health care, uh, and then work together across the divide to, to make that happen. And then I also think working locally in our local churches and our local communities, you know, it's very easy for us to spend all day on Facebook ranting about, you know, a political figure, but are we rolling up our sleeves in our communities and actually doing things that we can do uh, to alleviate human suffering? I also think uh, in terms of being prophetic, we need to, uh, I've adopted this phrase since the election, we need to save our outrage uh, for things that are truly outrage. You know, the, the, the constant news cycle lulls us into just every second being outraged about every single thing. Um, our president is, you know, is very bombastic, very hyperbolic, so he attracts a hyperbolic response. Um, but I was even saying this you know, to my fellow conservatives in the Obama administration, let's save our outrage for things that are actually outrageous. You know, how many times the president plays golf? Like, I don't, I don't really care about that. I you do. Um, you know, I'm, a I'm a golfer, the more the merrier. Do Dwight more Eisenhower played more golf than anybody. He was yeah. a very good president. It's like, we have to save our outrage for things that are truly outrageous and really be um, outraged about things that are actually true. You know, it seems like a story will come out and everyone's like, can you believe this? This is the worst thing ever. And then 24 hours later, it's like, actually, none of that's true. So like, we're just lulled into this kind of perpetual outrage machine. And I think it lessens our public credibility. You know, so if you're, um, you know, I think conservatives in the Obama Obama era that were really specific about their criticisms and did that in good faith were heard more than people who were just constantly outraged about every single thing. And I think that's very similar in this era that mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to, you know, just uh, um, endorse every single thing the president does. I think there's basically two polarities. There's, there's when it comes to, to President Trump, there's a kind of Christian who wants to sort of anoint him as one of the 12 apostles and he can't do nothing wrong. And then there's a kind of Christian who, you know, every single thing he does, every single second is like the worst thing ever. And 
we're, you know, it's like catastrophe. And I think we have to be somewhere in the middle. We have to be discerning. We have to pick and choose our spots and really be upset and outraged over things that are, that are truly outrageous. Uh, just for a, one last question to help us end on a more uh, positive note. Well, that's an actually a pretty good positive note as it is. But what is your, what in your mind is the best way forward since we have a division of the house among evangelicals? Sometimes it's characterized by, I think the word worldview is not a bad way to characterize it. I, I actually do think sometimes it's a matter of some evangelicals have unbiblical uh, attitudes toward certain things. Some some don't. Um, anyway, we ha- do we continue to try to live together? Do we seek an amicable divorce? If we do try to seek to live together, what are the best ways forward to help us both talk to one another in ways that are civil and Christian and work together or work in our own ways in our society? So I'm going to answer Mark's question with another question <laughs> to get get away from it. Um, <laughs> she learned no. that from me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do think, so I, I have for years ever, when I was at Christianity Today and even before that, very strongly defended the word evangelical because I saw it as a theological and historical movement that had given so much vibrancy to the church, had brought so many souls to faith. It's my my heritage. The, the milieu in which I came to Christ was in an evangelical context. And whenever kind of like sloppy journalists would use that word to describe essentially a, a narrowly con- constrained conservative Christian worldview. I would say it's so much more than what you're painting it as. We have to distinguish between the religious right and a group like World Relief, which is also evangelical. We need to make distinctions. Um, This is the first time, this election would be the first time that I would ever have been compelled to start using something like Jesus follower or Christ follower, which I think linguistically is a little bit clunky. Um, But I I am compelled by someone like Russell Moore's gospel Christian language. If this word that we have defended and have held tightly to means something in the public square that's radically, somewhat too radically different from how we define it in-house. We have to ask whether that word is helpful or meaningful, um, not only for public witness, but for our own formation. So I'm, I'm compelled by the language of, of gospel Christian, because I think it helps us um, transcend some of our party allegiances and the ways that ideologies on both the left and the right have shaped us in undue ways. I think, I would agree with Caitlin, that I think actually most ordinary evangelicals going to church uh, on Sunday uh, who are not thought leaders or whatever that, that means probably don't even describe themselves as evangelicals. They just probably think of themselves as Christians. And um, I think the best way to sort of... Uh, Make that um, make that term evangelical better is to live it out personally uh, in in a way that honors Christ, so that when people see us, you know, they say, "Oh, that's that's what an evangelical is." Okay, you know, I can, I'm good with that. I think in answer to your question, Mark, you know, counterintuitively, I actually hope that we have churches that have more political division than less. And what I mean by that is, I think the vision of the body of Christ, as I see it in in Revelation five and seven, you know. 
of every nation, tribe, and tongue gathering together, that we, we gather on Sunday with people not because they, they think like us and look like us, uh, but because we have been brought together by something that is supernatural, by, by the blood of Christ. And so actually, I'm hoping for churches where you're sitting next to someone that totally disagrees with you on the way you vote and the way you think about economic policy, but you're united in that uh, you've been uh, redeemed by Christ. And so we need churches that have lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats and, and people of all stripes uh, in there coming together to worship Christ. Don't forget the libertarian and communists. So. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't want to get in trouble. Green here, Party so. can sit in the back. Um, Julie, you had the first word, you want the last. All right. Wow, I never get that, at least not in my home. Um, <laughs> I actually, our, our family went to a church where we were probably in about the 5 or 10% of conservatives in it that was very liberal um, politically for many years, and that was a unique experience, um, and not a bad one because it really did force us to what, what holds us together, and, and that is a gospel. That being said, I do think, um, I do think there are some divides uh, within evangelicalism that probably should cause evangelicals to split, but they're not political ones. They come out, I think the political is sort of the above the waterline thing. I think it's below the waterline. Um, if you don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, which a lot of evangelicals don't anymore, well, that's a big deal. Um, we have an awful lot of people calling themselves evangelicals who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, who don't think it's authoritative in their life. That's a huge problem. And I think sometimes, in fact, Daniel and I were talking about this yesterday, um, I'm not sure evangelical, if we're going to have people using it who don't believe in some of the pillars of evangelicalism, that it does lose its meaning. And sometimes I feel like I have more in common with uh, a really strong Orthodox Catholic than I do with some people that call themselves evangelical. And so I wonder if that, if these divisions are going to um, morph over the next 50 years. And when I see what a lot of people calling themselves evangelical espouse and what they believe, and they don't believe even in the, you know, the biblical family, um, that's huge. That's a major, major deal. And, um, and I think it will be a dividing line in the church. But again, I think it plays out politically. Um, but it's below the, that's, that's above the waterline. This is below the waterline. And it, it comes down to theology. It comes down to what we believe and what we uh, think about scripture and how we interpret it and whether we think it's a living document like something the Constitution is or whether we believe it is, you know, the way it was written and the way it was originally in, interpreted and the way it's been interpreted for 2,000 years. Those are the things that I think unify us or divide us and, and should, rightly so. Okay, let's thank our panel. So I hope everyone enjoyed Mark's discussion that he led and got something out of it. And as always, you know that you can tell us how you really feel either over email or by going to Facebook or Twitter. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. We are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who made this podcast possible this week. We're very thankful for our producer, Richard Clark, for his idea in deciding to share this panel with everybody and all of our listeners. We're thankful for Alred, our producer, and all the work that he's doing. A reminder to everyone again that you can get a subscription of Christianity Today by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. And this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. However, if you are going to leave feedback, we ask that you do that on iTunes, and that really helps us out a lot. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye.